Hello, and thank you for listening to the Mathematics Teacher Educator Journal podcast. The Mathematics Teacher Educator Journal is co-sponsored by the Association of Mathematics Teacher Educators and the National Council of Teachers of Mathematics. My name is Eva Thenheiser, and I'm talking with Teresa Grant and Mariana Levine. Terry is a professor, and Mari is an assistant professor of mathematics education in the Department of Mathematics at Western Michigan University. We will discuss the article, Diverged and Converge, a strategy for deepening understanding through analyzing and reconciling contrasting patterns of reasoning, published in the March 2020 issue of the Mathematics Teacher Educator Journal. We will begin by summarizing the main points of the article and discuss in more depth the lessons they shared in the article, their successes and challenges, and how these lessons relate to their other work. Terry and Mari, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having us. Let's just jump right in. Can you describe your innovation? The context for our work is a number and operations course for prospective elementary teachers. So I had been involved in a curriculum development project for many years, and then Mari joined the faculty and began teaching the course that I had been working on. And we would have wonderful conversations about the course and then began a more formal collaboration And the diverge then converge strategy emerged from the conversations that we had about our practice. In particular, it was a response to the following problem of practice. So when you do a task over multiple semesters, you start to see patterns in the way students react. And in one particular case involving whole number division, a task always resulted in these two answers, one correct, one incorrect. The number of students who did each varied semester to semester, but the two answers always emerged. And in this case, the incorrect answer had to do with keeping track of the meaning and in particular, understanding the idea of remainder. So we began to always include those two responses and have students try to analyze the thinking. But the conversations, though different from semester to semester, were always a little unsatisfying because once a prospective teacher kind of figured it out and explained it to the class, The rest of the class lost any reason, any incentive to dig deeper. So the problem for practice for us was how to engage all of the prospective teachers into making sense of both the correct and incorrect reasoning, chains of reasoning. So we designed what we call the diverge then converge orchestration strategy. And it has four basic phases. So the first phase was to let students work on the task and observe how they did. And then at some point, we moved to phase two where we would interrupt them. We would tell them that we had observed these two different answers or these two different basic approaches. And we would refocus them on analyzing those different ideas and understanding and recreating the chain of thinking that led to them. Then in the third phase, we would ask either individual students or groups of students to go to the board and present those chains of reasoning. And specifically, we asked them to do it without bias. That is, without letting on whether they thought it was correct or incorrect. 
but just to get the chain of thinking out there. And after the chains of thinking were out there, then we would allow them to go forward to the discussion of validity, whether one was correct or incorrect or what was going on and why. So that was the strategy. And that's the innovation that the article is Based on. And from reading your article, it sounded like, at least for the strategy that you discuss in the article, that the students who solved the um, problem in a way that was not correct really solidly believed that they were correct. Oh, absolutely. Completely believed. And part of that had to do with the structure of the task itself. So as I said, I've been working on uh, this curriculum with various people for years, and the numbers mattered. So this was a division task in which the problem was 189 divided by 11, assuming a sharing meaning of division. So if I have 189 things to share among 11 groups, how many can go in each group? And we use, in a lot of cases in this course, a first step as a way to prompt them to think differently. So in this case, it was very important that the first step, the estimate, was knowing that if you had 220 things shared fairly among 11 groups, there would be 20 things for each group. And because they had to work down, they would lose track of what the 189 meant and what it meant to have a remainder. And so they would honestly and truly believe we would have three camps at least. You'd have a camp that absolutely believed 18 remainder nine was the correct answer. You could not convince them otherwise. A group that might be teetering between that answer and the correct answer and a group that understood the correct answer. But in each of those groups, they didn't necessarily understand the reasoning of the other. And so part of the strategy was making sure that they really understood the reasoning. So would you say for the converge, sorry, diverge converge mm -hmm. strategy, that is a key component that the students strongly believe that they are reasoning correctly? I believe so. And I believe that one of the evidences for that is that every semester, these two answers come up every semester and the The problem of practice for us that Mari and I discussed was over the semesters, it really depended who shared the reasoning and whether people were willing to actively engage in that or whether they would just give up. And so we really wanted to find a way to, as much as possible, force them to engage in the reasoning. But well, yeah, they... Issues of status. So for example, as Terry said, you know, who's presenting and in which order the presentation happens matters a bit too. And so that's structured mm -hmm. into the diverge and converge strategy in general, not only in this particular case. Yeah, I was asking this follow-up question because I think that all of us who teach know these problems, right? Yes. Where we know when we teach this, this is going to come yes. up. And mm -hmm. so I think then the diverge-converge would be a strategy we could apply to any of those kinds of situations. And we do apply it in multiple situations. I think it's something I wouldn't necessarily do every day. Yeah, and I think you have an appendix where you have, so you go in depth into one example in the article, but then you have an appendix where you have additional examples. But I mean, walking away from the article, it's almost like I know I have situations like this in my class, right, where I always know what happens. And so mm -hmm. this could be a strategy strategy that I apply for that. So I think you gave us a good sense for the strategy. Give us a brief summary. What were the results of your 
article? The heart of the article is first describing the classroom instance that Terry mentioned, showing the diverge then converge, how it worked in a particular classroom instance with that task, and then figuring out a way to make a connection between our conjectures about how um, diverge then converge would prompt continued engagement and sort of allow students to get deeper into the conceptual issues and to connect, you know, what we thought should be happening once we do these phases of the orchestration strategy with students' actual experiences of each of the phases. And so that required us to innovate a little bit. The first time we tried studying our practice, we just videoed our classrooms and we're trying to look for features of um, participation and reaction, but it was very hard to kind of make that connection. And so Eventually, it led us to adapt this approach of using students' confidence graphs. We adapted this from a study that Jack Smith and colleagues had been using in studying the transition from secondary to collegiate mathematics. And then in work that I had been doing with Jack, we were using it to study student experience at the level of a semester as they were making the transition to proof, sort of looking at students a little bit later. And I thought, oh, well, maybe we can use this approach of um, having students report on their experience to give us feedback about how the the orchestration strategy is working at the level of a classroom discussion. And so we used a structured version of that tool, this confidence graph tool. We asked students at the end of the class to reflect on each of the phases of the, the discussion and to give you know, a reflection about how they were feeling at each of the stages in terms of their confidence and their reasoning. Can you remind us of what the phases are? Yes. So the phases, there's the four main phases. They first engage in their work on the task as uh, presented in the, as launched. So in this case, Mm -hmm. it was 189 divided by 11 with a sharing meaning. And that's individual. Individual. uh, They just get some time to, you know, get their, the wheels turning and get into the task themselves. So it's, we, at this point, the timing is somewhat important here as well. We don't want everybody to come to a complete resolution at that point. We just want them to get started. And then we interrupt when we see some people are already starting to have some more closure, but other people are still working, and we redirect them to thinking about the two answers that Terry mentioned, in this case, 17 remainder 2 and 18 remainder 9. And the new task is to go back and to consider both of those answers and the chains of reasoning that would lead to them. In the confidence uh, graph, we separate kind of a phase 2A and 2B. They're thinking about the, the two different answers. Mm-hmm. And then there's the presentation phase. And again, we separate that out into how they reacted when they saw 18 remainder nine. So we usually, we structure in actually having them talk about the incorrect pattern first and then 17 remainder two, and then the discussion of the you know validity wrapping it up. And so we did that for a couple of reasons. First, we wanted to just see, was there some evidence of perturbation once they were confronted with a, a strategy that was different than their own? And as you mentioned, or we talked about before, you know, it's students did, at least it was our intuition that students seemed to be pretty tied to their initial ways of thinking about the task. And it was something that being presented with a different pattern did appear to cause perturbation. So we wanted to use the confidence graphs as a way to actually see if we could see that pattern for students. So we looked for dips and variation in the shape of the graphs to substantiate that 
intuition. So let me interrupt you for a second for the listeners. So okay. this graph had like different timestamps yes. and you asked students to reflect back how confident were you when you were working on your own at the beginning of the discussion. It's a different time points. That was an adaptation from the way it was used before where the research question was what is salient to the students about the discussion or about their experience in these transitions that we were studying in these other contexts. For this purpose, we were very interested in mapping to the phase of our strategy. So we specified those points along the x-axis okay. sort of time, the entire then, time. Right. And then they rated themselves from low to high on a five-point scale. Confidence. Yeah. yeah. And then you averaged their ratings across all the time points, and then you present that in the paper. For us, we are interested in the dips and sort of we're not comparing them to each other. This is more of a qualitative picture, a one step beyond looking out at our class and trying to get an impression of the experience. And so this was a tool for, for hearing from students who are quiet and who might not respond and show us their thinking very audibly. So this was a way that we heard from absolutely everybody and had some feeling for what the experience was like. So, yeah. Okay. And so how did you use that in your data? analysis. We looked for evidence of variation and we wanted to know when they see 17 remainder 2, the correct answer, do they feel less confident in immediately, but then are they able to kind of grapple with and resolve? So that was the very important part for us was moving through that uh, dip to resolution. And so that was the evidence for us that this was something that enabled them to keep reasoning and also resolve their reasoning was, yes, there will be these dips and recovery but at the end, how are they feeling about their understanding of the task? And that was every student in the class came away rating themselves highly. But then we thought, okay, but that's their impression of how they feel. What other evidence can we use to substantiate how they actually understood at the end of the, at the, end of the lesson? And so that was where the written explanations and the analysis of those came in to give us a better indication of their ability to understand what the conceptual issue of the, the discussion was and to articulate that. And some might argue that the dip that you were talking about is essential to learning, right? That we need some productive struggle that we need to go through. I think Joe Bowler calls it like the valley or whatever. I just watched one of her, but this notion of productive struggle, right? To like have that dip. Okay. So to me, I have to say, I love your innovation of diverge and converge, but this confidence graph also gave me some ideas of what I could do because I often ask my students to report in addition to do they think they are correct. Also, how confident are they in their solution? And as you were talking, I was thinking, because what you did is you did it reflecting back, right? Mm -hmm. But one could almost use an app where you could like every now and then say, okay, now click how confident you feel, which would be like more Mm -hmm. like timely, right? Anyway, I'm yeah, we, diverging we actually, to a different paper. <laughs> okay, we, when, we, when we designed this, we debated having them do it in the moment versus at the end, but eventually yeah. decided that it was too distracting. I don't know. <laughs> well, possibly. I mean, I think it's something to look into more. Yeah. 
It'd be interesting to compare, right? Because often you remember things differently than from what they were actually like. That being said, they're going to remember what they're remembering, right? So that's their reality walking out. Yeah. All right. My next question said, what's the important problem or issue that you're addressing? I think we said some about that already, but let's summarize it briefly. So for us, it's finding ways to make sure that all of your prospective teachers or all of your students, whatever the class is, all of them engage in making sense of chains of thinking, whether they're correct or incorrect, whether they're efficient or inefficient, but that they engage in all of them rather than just focusing on either their own way of thinking or the one that somebody presented that seems best. So to us, that's the important issue and ways yeah, like to often, do that. Often students will go like, oh, that's not how I did it and not pay attention. Yes. Um, so actually, this leads me to the question, who should read this article? Because one could argue that this is especially important for teachers, right, to be able to follow logical steps for various kinds of reasoning. But would you say it's beyond teachers or... I, I think it is. I mean, I happen to be married to a mathematician who teaches classes that are not for teachers. And these ideas are ideas that we discuss all the time of ways, because at the heart of it, it's helping you understand a particular mathematical idea. In this case, it's understanding the idea of division and what a remainder means and whether it's certainly very important if you're going to be a teacher, but one could argue that any student in any mathematics class, that this kind of approach allows them to get the heart of some conceptual issue. Well, I mean, in fact, it's very connected with, you know, math practice three. So in, you know, construct viable arguments and critique the reasoning of others, it connects right to something we already identified as really important for all students K-12 to be engaging in. But I think you're right that there's additional value for teachers. And so, you know, we in doing this work, recognize that there was a lot of direction from the K-12 literature to informing, you know, orchestration patterns that we use in, in teacher education as kind of ways of modeling for our pre-service teachers, how they might then orchestrate discussions with their students. And this one we feel has additional value because that is allowing them also this unpacking, uh, contrasting patterns of reasoning in this case too, but we also think of it maybe more than two, but that contrasting patterns of reasoning as being a really important skill for teachers to develop. Let's jump into the research questions. Uh, what were your research questions? The research questions stemmed from the hypotheses that we had for how the strategy actually functions for our students. So we wanted to know, you know, does juxtaposing the two answers encourage perturbation in the pre-service teacher's thinking and support them in continuing to engage? Is this supported by the data is basically the question. And then the second hypothesis, will the pre-service teachers as a result of engaging in this strategy be able to resolve the conflict that that they get into. And so will it be productive for them in the end? Will it deepen their understanding? And does the data support that? I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how the resolution happened. Mm -hmm. And then you have that last step where you have them follow logically through the incorrect solution. Is that correct? So in the third stage, there's presentations of each, uh, the chain of thinking that led to each final answer. 
And when we discuss those, the purpose of that discussion is very specifically on, do you understand the chain of reasoning, not whether you agree with it or not? So there is, we try to keep that conversation separate. And when everybody understands the two chains of reasoning, then we ask them to take a little time to talk about validity. Now, the way this unfolds happens differently in each class. Sometimes we send them back to small groups first before a whole group discussion. But I would say more often than not, and in the case of the instantiation we talk about in this article, the conversation about validity is not trivial because they're trying to convince each other and find the words to convince each other. And this can wax and wane. And there are times when we've had to send our kids back to small group to have a little time to talk some more about the ideas that have been presented before they're ready to talk whole group again. But it mostly comes down to them being able to connect to the meaning of division. This idea that, and in many cases, they feel more comfortable if it's in a story. So in this particular case, I think they created a story about balloons. You have 189 balloons and you're handing them out to 11 kids. How many can each kid get? And then they'll start talking about, well... If you start out with 220, that means you've started with some fake balloons. And then keeping track of the real balloons versus the fake balloons is what allows them to figure out that the remainder can only be real balloons. And although the wording is different, it really comes down to that in most classes, understanding this real versus fake. And that's usually when they're able to come to some closure. But even having done that whole group and even having spent the time, still then having them go back individually and write about it, you're still going to see variation in the way they are able to articulate that idea. And that's what we saw in their, in their written explanations. And while nobody was at what we consider the bottom level, which we've seen in previous activities. Articulating yeah, how, but not why. Right. So they were able to explicitly deal with this idea of extra items. But in our mind and in the paper, we talk about whether they're able to come up with a convincing argument that we think would really convince somebody who held these beliefs. And so they vary in that. So I wouldn't say that they're all 100% there. Yeah, a common thread between this task and others that we've you know, been experimenting with the diverged and converged strategy with has been the role of context in the discussion of validity. So the one that Terry, the discussion that Terry was just alluding to, they start out without context and they have to kind of add that in. And that's part of, you know, what helps them establish the validity in this case. And um, so in some cases, and some of the ones that we have in the appendix, you know, they start out with a context and it's partly just sort of once having an, an explanation crafted and, and discussed and understood, then bringing it back and kind of mapping it back to the context in a careful way. But that's that's been a common thread for us in that last part of the discussion has been either introducing or redirecting to context. Yeah, because context is what allows them, their explanations have to emanate from meanings, uh, mathematical meanings. And we focus in the course on meanings that make sense for elementary students. So not algebraic definitions, but meanings that would make sense to a third grader. 
and they have a tendency to leave those, which is when they get in trouble, and it's bringing them back to those meanings. Let's talk a little bit about evidence. We already talked about the confidence graphs that you had them um, create. I don't know if you had them create the graphs. You no, we gave them to them. Like, right, you just had them rate, rate their confidence nice. at different times. And um, what else did you collect and how did it help you answer the questions? So first, we actually had some open-ended questions about the confidence graph to make sure that they were interpreting it in the way that we hoped they would. So open-ended questions about a high point, a low point for them, and whether they were still struggling. So that gave us a little more confidence ourselves in that they were interpreting the graphs the way we intended. But then the second part that we've alluded to is where they we gave them a piece of paper with essentially the argument for the incorrect answer, 18 remainder nine. We basically summarized what always happens and how that is arrived at. And then their task was individually on paper to fix the strategy and explain their fix in a way that would help somebody understand why their thinking wasn't valid and make it clear how and why they altered the strategy. So that was individual work that then we collected and analyzed in the same way that we analyzed their work on quizzes and tests. So the the first level is sort of, can they fix it? Can they fix the strategy in a meaningful way? And then can they explain why the fix is necessary and do it in a way that would help somebody who had this error? And in in sort of grading those papers, we had what we called a level one, which is they're able to describe how to fix the incorrect strategy, but can't explain it. None of our students were there. A level two, where they described how to fix the incorrect strategy, they attempted an explanation, but it was either incomplete or unconvincing. So there were good elements there, but they were not there yet. And then the third level where they could clearly describe it and offer a coherent explanation that hit the key points. And so in the paper, we offer some examples of student work in those different levels to get a sense of what we considered a convincing argument. And interestingly, convincing arguments did not always use context. We included examples in the article, both of one that kind of did it in a more generic way versus one that really used a story, his own story, to make sense of it. So would you say there was a difference between students that initially gave the incorrect chain of logical reasoning in how they performed versus students who initially gave the correct chain of arguments? Did you look at that at all? We did not look at that, but based on many semesters of experience, interestingly, those who start with the 18 remainder nine, some of them have a stronger sense of why it doesn't work as a result. But it, it winds up both ways. You have those who are convinced of the correct answer and likewise may not have as strong a sense. So I get both kinds, but we didn't do that specific analysis in this case. We did wind up with at least two thirds of them at the level two and about a third of them had reached the level three. And this was just one instantiation, right? So I assume if you do this over and over that that might be interesting to see what would happen. 
Looking back at your article, as I mentioned earlier, I feel there's like a ton of contributions in there. So there's the main one that you talked about, the diverged and converge, but then there's also that confidence interval and other pieces. So I'm imagining or I'm asking you to imagine people reading your paper. And what do you imagine that they can walk away with in terms of oh, I can use this now. Yeah. I mean, I think as you pointed out earlier, you know, there are anybody who's teaching is, um, you know, generating this knowledge of the patterns that arise in their class. And so anytime that that arises where you have contrasting patterns of thinking that you want to make the focus of the discussion, you could use diverge then converge and adapt it to orchestrate a discussion using those broad. So to do so, I would have to... I'm just trying to think I have like different and different example in mind, but I would have to have a, a good knowledge of the logical chain of reasoning my students usually do. So I would have to really analyze the incorrect strategy so I could develop a way to share it that would really get at the why. Yeah, this has been something Terry and I have been talking about. To what degree would you ever do this on the fly? To what degree is this something, you know, that it really is drawing upon that anticipation work and that store of knowledge that you're developing over time and knowing, you know, already having an idea for kind of the, you know, giving some more structure or ideas for how to structure a discussion that really emphasizes the thinking in a way that you may already be intending to do this with contrasting strategies, but there's the layer of not getting personal in it as well, sort of evaluating, is this a time in the course where I want to, you know, remove the status issues of the, and how they might play out in the discussion and re- really focus students on this uh, skill of um, analyzing the thinking of others and, and doing so really deeply, making that like the heart of the discussion. And then, you know, another, as you pointed out, a separate contribution is the confidence graphs. Those we are using in many different ways within teacher education. We used it here to analyze the, the way diverge and converge functioned in our class. But I think any question you have about how your students are experiencing something that you're trying out, it could be adapted to fit answering those questions or giving you information about those issues. So to wrap up, Let's just kind of look at how does this particular work fit into your larger body of work? There's a lot of research orchestrating discussions at the K-12 level, and we built on some of that that work. And for teacher educators, for future K-12 teachers, it's important to be prepared for that work, not only by understanding chains of student thinking, but by experiencing those kinds of orchestration strategies before beginning to prepare to do them on their own. And so that's, I think, something that introducing to or emphasizing in teacher ed and thinking about ways to leverage these ideas to help focus on important mathematical ideas and pedagogical ideas is an important thing. And we know from research that although these ideas have been out there for a while, they are difficult to enact. And so we need more examples of them, more ideas for ways to make them feel like you can do them in your classroom. Okay. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having us. And for further information on this topic, you can find the article on the Mathematics Teacher Educator website. This has been your host, Eva Thanheiser. Thank you for listening and goodbye.